What's up, everybody? It's your girls, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. And we Hello. are your tipsy hosts from the Tipsy Ghost. I love okay. that. Okay. So okay. <laughs> That's good. Well, the two, tipsy, the two tipsy hosts with the one not so tipsy host. <laughs> I just really tried to incorporate that. I know. I no, know. I think you did a great job of incorporating it. Thank you. I surprised I everybody. Mm-hmm. I love it. It came out Hi. great. Whenever you started, I got ready to correct you. And then I was like, oh, look at her go. <laughs> I trusted you completely the whole time. You did not. <laughs> I wouldn't trust me either. It's fine. So um, anyways, back on to what's going on. We are podcasting remotely again. Again. <laughs> so you guys get to listen to Lindsay having problems with her computer freezing up. Again, your new router is not here yet. It's not. It's not. And my, I mean, hopefully it will be a little bit better right now because my kids went to bed, but we'll see. It's fine. Everything's fine. It is fine. And honestly, it's super fun because Sarah and I have never gotten to give so many jazz hands. (laughs) Somehow we decided that whenever Lindsay freezes, we're going to let her know silently by doing spirit fingers. And so that's her nice treat. Whenever she unfreezes, she gets to see us just laughing with spirit fingers. It's scary to say it's more funny in theory because when the computer freezes, I don't see anything but your frozen faces. But when and then I'm by myself back. going, oh, I'm frozen, aren't I? And I just talk to myself for a few seconds. And then do you come back to us giving the jazz hand spirit fingers? I come back and they are laughing hysterically, giving me jazz fingers. And I'm trying to like finish the thought I'm saying. And then they're like, you're interrupting us. I'm like, I can't tell. <laughs> Thundering here now too. Uh-oh. Is it really? Yeah, it's happening. You know what? We haven't had a good thunderstorm lately, and I'm kind of here for it as long as I mean, the internet stays. What are we doing this week? What should we talk about? I think we're gonna do a surprise true crime episode. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> two different kind of woos. I right don't there. think that was very enthusiastic. <laughs> Mine was like a very enthusiastic, and yours was like a ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why you're doing a sultry ooh. I mean, it was very spur of the moment. That's She's how I feeling felt. herself over there. <laughs> I felt in the second, like, ooh, yes, true crime. <laughs> so we all picked a different true crime. And I just want to say that, guys, this week, it was not me who was sending the anxious text about who did you guys do. Uh, it was me. When I got that, I was like, my goodness, what am I going to do with these people? I'm not going to tell you who I'm doing. So stop right. asking. Let me tell you why. I I have a very specific reason, and I'm going to go first here, so I'm going to tell you why even more here in a second. But I got to a point in my story where Anne Rule wrote a story about my person, and I very specifically remember you talking about you talking to Lindsay in the very first episode about Anne Rule in a yes. book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly why. And I was like, "Oh shit, is this person? <laughs> uh, that is exactly why." Oh. So like, oh my god, I swear, if I have been through all these hours of researching and typing, and blah blah blah, as we do, then I'm going to be real sad. <laughs> so that's that's why I hit a moment of panic. Like, oh my god, how many people can Anne Rule write about? <laughs> a lot. She writes about a lot. That's all she does is true crime. Kind of her thing. Yes. <laughs> yes, but uh, in the moment, uh, you know, 
I was like, oh, shit. Is this it? it are we done? Well, it's so. kind of like how Lindsay told me that she got hers from Netflix. And I was like, ooh, I got to go to Hulu then. <laughs> Mine wasn't Netflix. You said it was on Netflix. Oh, that's another one that I'm going to do in the future. No, this one, there was a documentary about him or a movie about him. But I caught it on YouTube. Mm, you told me Netflix or else I would have had other things to do. Sorry. Don't do the one on Netflix because I'm still gonna do. I'm still gonna do the one on Netflix eventually. Maybe I just want to surprise you at a later date. See, all I'm saying is there are a ton of true crime people out there in the world, but somehow we all talk about the same people. <laughs> I know. Can, can we hold, please? What 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 are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> are you dying? What happened? <laughs> no, I acted like I choked, but I didn't. Just I just very dramatic. Saw Boydson doing this. Oh. <laughs> I was like. What are, what are we doing? I was trying to tell him to get me a smaller glass of what he's having. It'll pair great with my wine. Thank you. Love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the name of that song? Yeah. Yeah, three times. <laughs> the fun part of remote podcasting is we're not in the same room, but we are having dance parties in our own rooms <laughs> remotely. To songs that are not really there. Yes, to songs that are in our own head. Still the Luba, Chris. <laughs> Luba. Luba up. Um, All right. So, so anyway, yes. That is where my anxiety was driven from. So now do you understand a little bit? So how do we take care of this in the future? Do you want me to give you a state? Do you want me to give you a, like, a country? Yeah. Do you want me to give you... I'm not going to give you much. I just want you to know that. I mean, well, the country is okay. not helpful. <laughs> Well, for me, it was. Because <laughs> remember when I said I was doing Croatia? I still thought that you guys might do Croatia. <laughs> so country's was, not helpful. I was not in the country of Croatia, ever. <laughs> Nobody's going to be in the country of Croatia. <laughs> Just saying, welcome to my world of anxiety. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't do... know how to fix that problem. Maybe to just say I, I'm pretty much I. So I think because of my fascination with true crime and paranormal growing up, I am always like more likely to delve into local stuff first mm. and like figure that. That's always where I've gone to first, and so that's where I went to today again. And uh, so yeah, I'm always like, do did I go local because we're from here? Or because I always heard about these things growing up? Um, and then did you guys also? So I'm always gonna yeah. go that route, I feel like initially, but I can always expand. Well, I think that you're going to expand because you got a pretty cool book, didn't you? Um, I got a very cool book from a coworker, and it is called Kansas City Crime Central. I'm just showing this to Lindsay for oh, the first time. Kansas City Crime Central. So you're not going to expand. <laughs> so no, I'm not going to go further. <laughs> I thought it was just like a general crime book, and now it's a Kansas no. City crime book, so now you're Kansas never going City, to expand. And I'm never leaving Kansas City. <laughs> but, but now you're monopolizing on Kansas City. We live here, too. Um, I kind of want to see that book when you're done with it, Kay. Thanks. I know. And I'm sorry <laughs> that I keep choosing local stuff, but you guys keep choosing elsewhere, so I'm just going to keep going. I I mean, yeah, there's no method to my madness on how I pick a story. I Google lots of random things and I go down like 50,000 rabbit holes until I find something. <laughs> yeah, I think I normally do too. And for some reason, I've been down the the rabbit hole of Kansas City here, Kansas City slash Lawrence in the last couple episodes. But again, I think it's because I've been so fascinated with certain stories growing up that I felt like I just had to like dive into certain things. And you now know? you can finally and, talk about it openly to people who right. will judge you to your face. That's right. To my face. 
I lost Sarah. Can you see Sarah? I can't see. I, I see her. She's waving. Those... I can't see her anymore. I She's only still see waving. you. Oh, are you disappointed about that? I mean, oh. <laughs> no, I would just like to see everybody. Let's see. Speaker view. Let's see. Do this. Technology. Lean okay, with her, rock with it, lean with her. <laughs> I can't see her. To the window. Okay. To, her. to the wall. To the window. Um, maybe she'll come back eventually into my life. And I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I just hear her voice. Back. It's all coming back to me now. I can still see you. I know. This is weird. And What's voice can see you. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know my internet, I don't know what to do either. It's just, mm-hmm. I just get a big screen of points, which I'm not mad about. I'm not mad about okay. it. <laughs> she smiles at me. <laughs> I don't know. Did I click something? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't figure it out. <laughs> Here's the problem. I don't know where we left. She's back. Okay. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> Hello, I missed you. <laughs> See, that's what I needed in my life. <laughs> right. Are we ready to dive into my local true crime topic? I'm so ready. I'm ready. And the guess is, I already did Bob Bradella, so that was the big one. Uh, that's the main one. I, uh, I just want to be surprised. Is no? BTK t- not local enough? Not local enough for me. I'm I'm Kansas okay. City area, but I mean okay. he's localish. Ooh. Um, I saw one on a show, but I don't remember the name, so this has been really helpful. Did it happen in Independence? It was actually in Prairie Village. Okay, no, never mind. And scratch a word, Independence, because I'm going to do that later, so you never heard this. so ignore that. I was going to say, the other one I know of is, like, in Overland Park, so... Well, Mm. I think people get confused, so I'm just going to go out there and tell you that my person that I'm doing this true crime podcast on is Deborah Green. No, nope. have you ever heard of her? Yes. <laughs> oh gosh, right, so, I would have never come up with that. Yeah. Dang girl. All right. So I delved into this hard. Let me just tell you, I went in, I went in hard for this thing. And then I talked to my mom Oh. and I said, mom, guess what I'm doing? And I told her, and she was like, what? <laughs> so it goes, it turns out my mom has a personal connection to this story on levels that I can't really disclose, but basically she knew some people in this story. Mm. And uh, after after I researched everything and wrote everything down and we talked about it, then she starts validating basically everything that we talked about. So it's kind of crazy after the fact. All right. So Deborah, Deborah Green, she was born on February 28th, 1951 in Illinois. She was extremely smart and apparently taught herself to read and write before she was three years old. What? So I know. What? I said the same thing. <laughs> As someone who has three-year-olds currently who are hearing turn four, no way that my kids that could be reading and writing. I'm like, what? My kid was like barely figuring things out at three. Okay. I mean, my boy is just now learning how to not poop his pants. Oh, so. that, that took a long time. I house, still have so, trouble okay. with my bladder, so... <laughs> So you were no Deborah Green is what you're saying. <laughs> All right. So apparently she participated in many school activities and was co-valedictorian of her high school. She was described as someone who, quote unquote, was going to be successful. She attended the University of Illinois in 1969 and went on to attend the University of Kansas School of Medicine from 1972 to 1975. She initially chose emergency medicine as her specialty and began working at Truman Medical Center after her graduation from medical school. Uh, so she married Dwayne Green 
2016 uh, while she was in med school, but divorced in 1978. And I put that specifically because she was known as Deborah Green and she was married to Dwayne Green. But um, she actually divorced him in 1978. So very quickly after she married him. So she actually married a man named Michael Farrar. And he was actually completing his last year of med school. And they were married in uh, 1979, they moved to Ohio where Farrar was accepted for an internal medicine residency. So Deborah worked as an emergency medicine phys- physician, <laughs> but eventually she became dissatisfied with her ER profession and switched specialties. She began a secondary residency, which is actually, I, I've never really known too many residents to go back into a specialty. So I think that was kind of interesting. Uh, she went back into a secondary residency and joined his program. So they had their first child, Timothy, on January 20th, 1982. And <laughs> it's thundering hard. Oh, dang. I can hear it. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And my kids are screaming upstairs. So it's fine. Everything's fine. Are, so, are you uh, sure? <laughs> I think so. According to them, the world is ending. (laughs) Everything's dramatic to them. So they had their first child, Timothy, on January 20th, 1982. And after her maternity leave, she returned to her fellowship in hematology and oncology at the University of Cincinnati. So uh, two years later, she had her second child named Kate. She returned to her studies after maternity leave. And by 1985, she had completed her fellowship. So she went on into her own private practice in hematology and oncology while Farrar, her husband, finished the last year of his cardiology fellowship. Later, Green and Farrar both joined established medical practices in Kansas City, Missouri. So that's how they brought him here. So after a year, she started her own private practice, which prospered until she became pregnant again and took time off work for another maternity leave. And the third child was born and her name was Kelly. She was born December 13th, 1988. So as the children grew older, they were enrolled in Pembroke Hill Private School. Does everybody know where that is in Kansas City area? Did you say Pembroke? Pembroke. Pembroke. But Pembroke. 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 (laughs) None none of those people are are broke. Let me just say. Pembroke. That's a true story. (laughs) I never went to Pembroke. It is spelled P-E-M-B-R-O-K-E. I have heard of it, but I don't know where it is. This is a private school in Kansas City, and we're just going to not figure out how to spell it or say it. It's fine. So apparently she was a good mother. She wanted the best for her children and encouraged them in their activities. Um, She attempted to resume her medical career after her last maternity leave, but her practice faltered and her chronic pain increased. So in 1992, she gave up her practice and became a homemaker. So she worked part-time from home um, and she did peer medical reviews and Medicaid products. Uh, Medical professionals who worked with her during this time described her as being distant and cold towards her patients and displaying obsessive behavior towards her husband. This is like fairly early on. So, okay, Farrar admitted that the marriage was never ideal. He later said that neither had expressed their love to each other, even at the early stages of marriage. So he never Never was never good. He recounted that Green seemed to lack the coping skills that most adults bring to the bear in the challenging times. And when she was into a rage, she sometimes harmed herself or broke things and rarely gave any thought, <laughs> my son upstairs yelling, <laughs> to whether she was in private or public during these episodes. So by the early 1990s, Farrar worked long hours away from the home mostly to avoid her. Yikes. So bummers. Bummers. So in January 1994, he asked for a divorce. 
So he moved out, but they tried to reconcile and buy a bigger house to help try to fix the issue. I think the thought was to that they would have like more space. I don't know. I don't know how that works, but apparently they thought it would. Um, but it fell through. I know that's a shock. shock. So even though um, they didn't buy this house, their original house actually burned to the ground. And it was due to an electrical short. And Deborah and the children moved into the, his apartment, which was like in the plaza, like downtown area. So they decided to reconcile again an attempt to start anew and they bought a new big house in Prairie Village, mm. Prairie Village, Kansas, which is kind of ish close to Kansas City. Yeah, it's a suburb. Yeah. I want to misspeak. You know how that goes. Okay. So they moved in June of 1994. So mm-hmm. he decided to bring up again the um the, the option of divorce when they went on a family trip to Peru in 1995. And apparently this this trip was actually more of like a school trip, and I don't want to mispronounce the school again, but it's Pembroke. Pembroke. Yeah, no. Pembroke. There you go. <laughs> they take school trips down to Peru during this time, and the families went with them. And so during this time, he also began having an affair with a nurse while <gasps> they were in Peru. Right. Which side note? Why were my Why was my school not taking trips to Peru for fun? Yeah, my school was definitely not. My school could not afford it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was not the same, apparently. <laughs> but also, I can't imagine that the the group was huge. Wow, that's pretty ballsy to try to get away with an affair in Peru with your family and your wife and her and her husband and the, their family. Pretty sketchy. Anyways. So they came back and Deborah found out and she apparently responded hysterically and told the children that their father was leaving them. She was also upset that a, a broken home might later disqualify their kids from debutante activities. Hmm. Okay. Glad your concern is for that, but okay. Even though they were going to divorce, Farrar did not want to move out of the house. He was concerned that Deborah was consuming large quantities of alcohol while supervising the children. She would spend her evenings drinking at home, sometimes to the point of unconsciousness, and would say inappropriate things in front of the kids. So one time the kids called him because they found her unresponsive, and when he showed up, it looked like she had just disappeared. Later, it turns out she was actually hiding in the basement, but... She told him that she was wandering in the town, hoping to get hit by a car. Oh. Mm. Okay, Deb. That's, yeah. Okay. Debs. Okay. In August of 1995, she left a sandwich uh, for her husband in the refrigerator of the home. Her husband mean Farrar. So he ate it and noticed that it tasted bitter. So within hours, he felt sick. And within days, he became violently ill. He went to the hospital, (laughs) but his illness puzzled doctors. Weird. So after he was discharged home, Deborah brought him a spaghetti dinner. Oh, Deborah. Gonna go, Deb. Deb. He grew violently sick. And again, he went to the hospital. He was home by Labor Day weekend and Deborah bought him another meal. And once again, he got sick. Dude. Okay, right. I think we're seeing a pattern here. I'm, I'm seeing a pattern. I'm wondering why you're still eating whatever your wife you is bringing you. Obviously, it's not right. Some way. Okay, but he did. So he went back to the hospital and doctors started wondering, does it have to do with your diet? That's what they started questioning. So in late September, he searched his wife's purse and found packets of seeds labeled castor beans. Huh. 
along with a receipt from a garden store. So she told him she was going to plant them, but he had never seen her planting anything in his whole life. <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? You've never planted things ever. Um, so he researched these seeds and found that they actually contained a poisonous substance called ricin. And when it's ground up, it can be mixed into any dish without detection. So there you go. He was actually concerned for his case, safety and called the police. Um, he tried to have her committed to a mental, mental hospital, and she went voluntarily to Menninger Clinic. I think that was in Topeka. That's it? Like, that's all? He didn't try to have her arrested for, like, attempted homicide three times? <laughs> no. I think at that time he was like, um, I don't know what else to do. She's crazy. Can you please send her there? And that's all That's all he could do. Oh, gosh. Uh, but since she went voluntarily, she checked herself out after four days. Yep. So Farrar, he moved out of the house, and things continued to escalate between him and uh, Green. So they had multiple arguments, and one night he told her, she was crazy, and he was going to take the children away. And that is when shit hit the fan. Because it hasn't already. <laughs> right. So it's not already, but kind of sketch. Right. At worst. So uh, apparently at 1230 a.m. on October 24th, 1995, Farrar received a call from a neighbor to tell him that his house was burning and that two of his children were inside. Oh, no. When he arrived, he saw that the police and firemen were already there, but it was too late. Kate, one of the children was able to escape and she crawled through the bedroom window by the garage roof and jumped to safety. Deborah fled through the bedroom door, which opened to a patio, which seems kind of sketchy in and of uh -huh. itself. Convenient. Right. That left both Kelly and Tim still inside the house. Police noted that Kate was acting frantic at the scene while Deborah seemed very calm. Mm. So afterward, they found a book called Necessary Lives on her bed. The book is apparently about several children who were burned to death in an arson fire. And uh, the female protagonist is accused falsely of a crime. Apparently, according to library records, Deborah had checked out several books about people killed by family members. Oh gosh. So she, she was in it. She was in it hard. So Deborah and Farrar, Michael, uh, were both taken to the police station for separate interviews. And in her, she often referred to the children in past him. The video was actually recorded hours before the children's bodies were even found. She was saying things like, Tim used to be my 13-year-old son. So mm. they found that very bizarre. Sure. And so Farrar was not in the house when the fire started, correct? No, he was in his apartment. He had moved out. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, by then. So uh, Tim Farrar was their son. And his body was found on the first floor right after and it had fallen through his bedroom upstairs so the death was caused by smoke inhalation and burns kelly ferrara's burn body was found in her bed and still curled up curled up oh i know i hate the, that i know it's messed up the day after the fire michael ferrara filed for divorce Oh, sure. Yeah. I think he had tried multiple times before. On October 27th, investigators declared the far as fire, far, 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 fire as arson. And they said that Deborah poured fuel in four places in the house, particularly on the stairway where the blaze would block any exit from the upstairs bedroom. Oh. So she was arrested on November 22nd, 1995 in downtown Kansas City after she dropped her daughter off at ballet practice. So mm. she was charged with two counts of capital murder and the deaths of her children. She was also charged with trying to kill her third child and poisoning her estranged husband. Um, the apparent motive was to hurt Michael Farrar because um, of his threats to divorce her. Her bond was set at the low rate of $3 million. Oh, 
Oh, that's, that's all it. So was she trying to like harm herself too? Why would you set fire when you're in the house too? Make it seem like you're not guilty. So I think that that was why they said that she said it in like um, specific places, like on the stairway and leading to their bedrooms, but her pathway was clear. Yeah. So on April 17th, 1996, she abruptly switched her plea from not guilty to no contest on all charges. In return, she would receive a life sentence and she was sentenced to two concurrent 40-year prison, prison sentences on May 30th and would not be eligible for parole for 40 years. She's mm. tried to appeal this twice, but has been denied both times. Apparently, I read about it and she said that she was not in the mental state to say that um, there was no contest, but they denied her plea times two and she's serving her sentence at a Topeka correctional facility I've actually been to so in fact I went to nursing school in Topeka and um in nursing school you have to go to a correctional facility do you remember this Boydston as part of your yep part of your criteria I suppose yes and I went to the women's to be a correctional facility so who knows i might have been i might have chatted with her i have no idea i have no idea isn't that crazy to think that's crazy yeah. she would have been there by then obviously right so yeah anyways that's the story of deborah deborah lost her mind she was insanely jealous lost her shit burned her house down and is in prison because she killed two of her kids tried to poison her husband here here's my thing i feel like arson is very easy to find out that it's arson. <laughs> like it's hard to get away with arson. I feel like, yeah. but you're a medical professional. She was a doctor. Like, I feel like if anybody knows how to, how someone can die <laughs> yeah. without anything being detected, it would be a medical professional. But also why the kids and not just the husband? Right. Why go after the kids and not the husband? Right. I talked about this a little bit to my mom honestly because we chatted about this whole case but I think um I think she just I think her trigger point was when um he told her he was going to take the kids away and it was it that was it like a, if I can't have them nobody can have them kind of thing right yeah oh, that's really sad though that's ugh, I can't imagine that dad and that sister who survived oh my gosh yeah yeah it's all messed up and more power to her and him because they're both living. And also the nurse that he had the affair with, she's alive and well, and she probably got wrapped up in all of this thing. I mean, it's all messed up. The whole thing is jacked up. I can't even, I can't even. Yeah. I, uh, I can't imagine. That was rough. You've had two rough stories back to back. Rock <laughs> um, oh. I told you. I, I know. I don't go light apparently. No. You did a good job, though. You did. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So I am next, and I want to knock on some wood because I have only frozen once during this whole time, so let's hope I don't freeze again. Well, you brought it up. I know, I know, I know. So I did one, and there is a movie about it. I said documentary. It's not, it's like a mockumentary, but Jack Black and Matthew McConaughey are in it, so it's obviously not a documentary. Jack Black? Jack Black plays my killer and Matthew McConaughey is the DA one of the most um iconic actors of all time <laughs> yes the movie I found it on YouTube you can watch it it's called Bernie I've heard of I mean I've heard of those two actors together and uh -huh. but I didn't know what it was so I'm excited well, now you know and you can watch it because it's about um 
Marjorie Nugent and Bernie Teed. And I'm going to tell you about them. Okay. Yes. I'm excited. I know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I researched it and then I watched the movie and the movie is actually pretty close to what happened. Um, And when I researched it, I was like reading lots of news articles about him. And in the movie, they're quoting like what the reporters were saying at the time, because this happened back in like the um, 80s and stuff. So it was kind of cool to see that, that they incorporated it well. Mr. Bernie Teed, his name was Bernhardt Teed II, but everybody called him Bernie. He was born August 2nd, 1958. And he was raised by his father primarily because he lost his mother when he was three years old. And then he had a sister and him and his sister were pretty close because he lost his father at 15. So he was pretty much on his own from 15 and on. And um, in high school, he took an after school job at a funeral home to support his sister and himself. Went on to get his associate's degree in mortuary science from McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and then moved to Carthage, Texas in 1985. This is kind of where our story begins. He was a very popular guy. He was described as peachy and sweet. Peachy. 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 I love that. You're in Carthage, Texas, which I don't know if you guys know of Carthage. It's east of Dallas, and it's like... The epitome of like when you think of Texas, this is what it is like small town, thick accents, cowboy boots, like small town living. <laughs> or at least it was back then. I don't know how it is now, but I've heard of it. So he is the assistant funeral director there because that's what his degree is in. He was very popular, but he did not appear interested in women. He was very involved in the town, taught Sunday school, he would preach when the pastor was out of town. He was also involved with professional singing groups, the Shreveport Chamber Singers. Gosh, say that five times fast, y'all. He was on the Christmas decorating committee for the town, involved with the local college there with their drama and music programs. I mean, he was kind of like doing everything. He was usually empathetic with older widows and would help them after the funeral with various tasks. Like once their husbands died, he would go to check up on them, see how they were doing, bring them like gift baskets kind of thing. So everybody just thought he was just so sweet to do that. He ended up taking on the richest widow in Carthage. Her name was Marjorie Nugent. She was 81 years old um, when her husband passed and she met Bernie and she met Bernie because he was doing all the funerals. And so her husband passed in March 1990, and she was worth between 5 to $10 million back then. Ooh, yeah. What's okay. that in today's money? I don't know. That was 1990. Oh. So Marjorie was born in 1915 and married to R.L., but they just called him Rod Nugent. They moved to Carthage in 1989 and built a 6,000-square-foot stone home. She was described as the talk of the town and had family members that she did not speak with. She had one son. Um, who lived further away. She had a sister who lived in Carthage, and this is a small town, and they did not speak. She was not well-liked around town. She seemed snooty and was difficult to get along with, is Uh how people describe her. Yeah. She was not well-liked. She was just very rich. Um, So her husband died of heart failure pretty unexpectedly. Only a handful of people came to his funeral. Oh, yeah. So Bernie um, is the assistant funeral director at Hawthorne Funeral Home um, and got close to her because of the after the funeral. He would have lunch with her at the estate, leave her notes of endearment and take her to theaters, etc. She, in turn, gave him her late husband's Rolex, which was worth $12,000 at that time. In 1991, so after about a year of them hanging out and being friends, She told her bank to accept checks from her account signed by him so that he could handle her bills. 
guys see where this is going. It's not going well. It's not going to a good place. No. I've seen this movie, but yes. Bernie spent time with her over the other widows, which started making the other widows jealous. Him and Marjorie went on a cruise together. They slept in the same cabin. Oh. Yeah, it was this whole, like, are they romantic? Is this just platonic? Mm-hmm. Like, nobody really knew. So for reference, just to kind of look at the money disparity between the two of them, Marjorie made about between two hundred to 300000 a year because her husband had retired from like the, I think it was like the gas and oil industry. So she was still bringing in income. Bernie made 18000 a year. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's enjoying living with her or being with her. <laughs> he makes 18000 a year and she gave him a $12,000 Rolex. Yep. Yep. What? <laughs> I know. More than, right. more than half his salary. <laughs> or let's, Yeah. More than half his salary. Uh-uh. Um, in 1993, so three years now, they've been doing this relationship thing, we're going to call it. Marjorie asked Bernie to come work for her part-time and still do part-time at the funeral. And she would give him a higher salary as her business manager and escort on trips around the world. Escort, huh? Yes. So she wanted to travel the world. Her husband never really wanted to. So now that he was gone, she's like, I want to go around the world and see everything, but I don't want to do it by myself. So she was basically paying him to come travel with her, which can somebody please find somebody to do that for me? Because I would do that. Marjorie changed her will around this time, making Bernie the sole heir to her multi-million dollar estate. Ooh, red flag, red flag. Big time red flag. Bernie then bought a house about a mile away from Marjorie's house. They traveled the world together. They went all over. But all of this came at a price. He had to be at her beck and call constantly. Like she would call him, she would page him, and she would say, you need to be here right now. So that's part of the reason why he bought a house so close to her because she was like very controlling of him and his time. Mm. So Bernie starts becoming the Robin Hood of Carthage, Texas, and was giving money from her bank account to anyone that he thought needed it. So he bought at least 10 cars for other people. He bought a home for a young couple, gave scholarships to college students, and pledged $100,000 to the new building campaign for his church. So taking all her money, but doing it in a nice way. Like he was not using it for himself at all. He was not buying things for himself. He was totally just literally giving all of her money away to people. Thank thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Such a sweetie. (laughs) He even bought a local business when it started failing um, and funded that completely. A co-worker at the funeral home borrowed money to open his own clothing business. So fast forward, we're in 1995 now. So five years that they've been doing this thing. And Bernie is reporting to others that he thinks Marjorie is developing dementia, which at this point, she's 86 years old. She's getting older. He also said, she's so controlling, it just wears me down. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Thanksgiving 1996. We're another year in the future. He visited his sister alone and told people that Marjorie was visiting her sister in Ohio. By early spring of 97, he was saying that she was in bed because of an illness and not accepting any visitors. By late spring, she was in a nursing home recuperating from a stroke and still did not want any visitors. I'm suspicious. Just wondering where Marjorie is. <laughs> Wait a I am. <laughs> During all of this time, he is still giving her money away, buying people jet skis and pickup trucks and just right, giving Jeff, them money. 
Jack Black, I'm on to you. <laughs> he is Robin Hooding. So now we're in July 1997. So remember Thanksgiving is when he first started telling people that she was like not available. July, nine months. Or no, it's been eight months. Sorry, doing that math. A woman called the sheriff department worried because nobody had seen Marjorie in eight months. And it took a month for the sheriffs to look into it. When they finally did, uh, they called Bernie, who was in Vegas at the time because he was doing a wedding. And he reported that Marjorie was staying in a hospital in Temple under an assumed name and did not want to be contacted by anybody. Is that a red flag, guys? I think he's lying. (laughs) (laughs) So Marjorie's son finally is like, look, enough is enough. Um, Even though they were a little estranged, he came to Carthage to search the house with his daughter, so Marjorie's granddaughter. And while they were searching the house with the police, he thought, that's odd. The deep freezer is taped shut. Why would it be taped shut? Ooh, really rare sticks. There's a body in there. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So he untaped it and looked inside. And in the bottom of the freezer in her home after nine months of being missing is Marjorie wrapped Uh in a sheet. Nine months, though? That's a long time. Nine months. And what's sad is it took eight months for people to start asking questions about where she was. That is so sad. Police obviously are like, dude, we need to find Bernie right away. Um, He's our number one suspect. He was found taking a team of Little League baseball players and their parents to dinner. (laughs) So they took him into questioning then. He calmly admitted to shooting her on November 19th. Oh, no. November 19th. Isn't that crazy? That's... Uh, so she was dead this whole time. She's been dead this whole time. She died November 19th. Cool. Of course she yeah. was. And July is when they found her. He used a gun that she made him buy to shoot armadillos. Oh. When asked why, he looked at the officers in bewilderment as if the answer was obvious. He said she had become very hateful and very possessive. And I don't know if I mention this, he shot her four times in the back. God. Very sad. But the townspeople rallied around him. He admitted to stealing her money and giving it to other people. So they set his bond at $1.5 million. The townspeople tried to raise the money to release him. So the courts filed additional charges for theft and raised the bond to $2.7 million. Oh, Oh, that's it? Yeah, that's it. So they like- Low, low price. (laughs) Purposely raised it so that way people wouldn't like get him out. Because they probably would because they liked him. Yes, they all loved him so much. Here's where it gets crazy. The church would publicly pray for him every Sunday. Like they, never, they never prayed for Marjorie or anything like that. They were praying for him and for Bernie. I have um, seen this movie. I swear. This I'm all sure, sounds familiar. I'm sure you have. I mean, the guy killed a lady, but okay. Or maybe yeah. I just saw the true crime. I don't remember. It's all intertangled. That's messed up. <laughs> I watch so much true crime, it's hard to I tell. Know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, was it a movie or was it real? I don't know. Um, townspeople visited Bernie in jail, bringing him cakes and pies. One woman told the Houston Chronicle, if I made a list of people I knew were going to heaven, Bernie would be the first on that list. Another townsperson was quoted as saying, I don't care if Mrs. Nugent was the richest lady in town. She was so mean that even if Bernie did kill her, you won't be able to find anyone in town who's going to convict him for murder. Let that sink in there. It's estimated that he stole around $1 million from her. I would assume it would have been more, though. Um, Yeah, I would have thought so, too. But, but during that time, right? Like, how long ago was that? This is in 94, 95. Oh, let's calculate. 
Are, are you putting it into the Google to calculator or is that just your. I'm putting it into my brain Google the calculator. Okay. It's $3 million in now time. Jeez, inflation has gone up that much? I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I mean, that is a lot of money though, $3 million. Deputies confiscated 50 videotapes from his house, some showing men involved in illicit acts described as misconduct. Huh, sounds like misconduct. Yeah. They won't say like what was in the tapes other than misconduct, but it's lots of rumors have been flying around that like, Lots of men were involved in these acts around town. So why did he do it, guys? For the money. Yeah, I was going to say money. I know why. He was getting the money while she was alive. Oh, because she was grading on him. She was she was she, mean. Because I, I have a theory. Because he was gay, he didn't want to have sex with her anymore. That, that could be it. So Bernie he was told gay, me, I think, right? It's never confirmed, but okay. yes, lots of people think he was. Okay. Bernie told his sister that everything was normal. They were leaving to go run errands and have lunch when he suddenly picked up the rifle and just started firing at her back. Mm -hmm. He put her in the freezer and washed the blood off the garage floor with a garden hose. He told his sister, quote, I started thinking about having to live with her for the rest of her life, and I just couldn't take it. I realized I could not stand it another day. Yeah, right. Okay. So, yeah, he just legit couldn't take it another second. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he put her in the freezer so one day he could give her a proper burial. Because he still cared about her at some point. Yes. Because yeah. that's like the cops were asking him, like, you could have disposed of her body. There's all these lakes around. Like, you could have, you had nine months. And he was like, mm-hmm. well, I wanted to give her a proper burial because everyone deserves a proper burial. Right. So that's why she was in the freezer. Bernie was sentenced to 50 years in prison. And like I said, he pled guilty because he admitted to it right away. He appealed and filed a post-conviction gosh, writ of habeas corpus and said that Marjorie was controlling and emotionally abusive, driving him to murder her in a dissociative state brought on by years of sexual abuse from his uncle. Oh. So, yeah. I heard habeas corpus once in Legally Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> I hurt my head. Backwards. <laughs> so, yeah. I declare habeas corpus. Is that your legally blonde voice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ron, Marjorie's son, filed a wrongful death lawsuit claiming Bernie had embezzled more than three million dollars. So they thought it was one million, but Rod, her son, said uh, it was more like three million. I believe that. The movie that I talked about with Jack Black as Bernie was released in 2011. Marjorie's granddaughter suggested this movie influenced the legal system because, get ready for this, Bernie was sentenced to life imprisonment or 50 years, and he was released in May 2014 after a forensic psychiatrist backed the sexual abuse theory because the movie made him seem so likable. Uh, Yes. Everybody loved him even while he was in jail. Yeah. This movie and they were like petitioning for him to get out. Yep. And they're all like, yes, he killed somebody, but like, I don't care. We like him so much. Right. And they're like, she was a mean person anyways. Like that's like, I sided with the DA, which is Matthew McConaughey in this movie and he was just like people are forgetting that he killed somebody like bottom line he killed somebody (laughs) doesn't matter if they were a well-liked person or not someone is dead because of him that's disturbing this is this is messing with me i cannot remember if i actually saw like the (laughs) actual account or the movie it doesn't matter i think it all is the same honestly it sounds like they did a pretty pretty realistic yeah 
What was that? Was that your cat? <laughs> so May 2014, he's released. The story's not over. <laughs> he went Sorry. to live in Austin. No, you're fine. He went to live in Austin, Texas, and they did a resentencing trial that started April 6, 2016. So like, this is recent. Very. During this time, her family finally testified that she was a kind woman. She was on good terms with her family, despite everything that the townspeople in the movie had showed. So he's still pleading guilty. Uncle is there to testify. He denies ever sexually abusing him. Sure. This is the first that I've heard of this, you know, blah, 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 like trying to poke holes in it. The new sentence was issued for 99 years or life. So he is now at the Telford Department of Texas Department of Criminal Justice serving basically life because 99 years. And that's where he is now. So he got out for about two years, but they did a resentencing trial and he was, I mean, still admitted to doing it. Yeah, he so. still killed somebody. Still killed yeah. somebody. I feel like when you turn the law into a popularity contra- contest, it gets kind of sketchy. That's exactly yeah. what happened. They all loved him. Yeah, and they found him, you know, despite him saying that he entered a dissociative state and all this stuff, they found him competent, all of that. So it's just crazy. This is like one of the few cases that you hear about that people loved the killer and hated the victim. <laughs> right. That is weird. That's a good story, Lynn. Thanks. Yeah, totally different take on things. Yeah. And still mm. to this day, like people there, they all know that he's guilty. Like nobody claims that he's innocent, but they're all just like, we love him. And he was just the nicest person ever. And they like excuse it. Almost. It's her fault. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's messed up. Wow. You guys ready for mine? Ready. I'm so ready. Actually, hold please. Uh, yeah, let's do it. My computer battery is at 17, but it says I have one hour left, so we're good. Okay. <laughs> we can do it. I'm on it. All right. We're going to talk about Mad Max. I feel like I've heard of this. You might have. Uh, this is about a spree killing in New York City in February of 2011 by a man named Maxim Gilman. And I learned about this by watching a show on Hulu that's originally from A&E. It's called The Killer Speaks. So pretty much each episode is detailing the murders of a convicted killer, which you would think would be the premise of a, uh, I mean, it's a dime a dozen with crime shows. I mean, we're talking about crime. Um, I mean, my watch list on Hulu and Netflix is almost solely true crime docuseries, paranormal shows, expose documentaries, sprinkled in with like Secret Life of Pets and old Nickelodeon shows (laughs) and The Office. Secret Life of Pets. Oh gosh, I love those movies. Um, I do too. They're cute. But with um, The Killer Speaks, the twist is that throughout the episode, they're interviewing the murderer and getting their side of the story, their reason why, um, hence the show title, The Killer Speaks. I binged two seasons in a weekend, and I was surprised Mm -hmm. at how open a lot of these people were about murders and about how um, they just have an overwhelming lack of remorse uh with Mm. several of the individuals that were interviewed throughout the two seasons um which is one of the key signs of psychopathy they bring on a forensic psychiatrist who watch the interview and give their impressions and they interview law enforcement journalists friends and family of the victims and even sometimes the uh the murderers, uh, the whole nine. So 
Before they go into details, the psychiatrist comes on and he states that Max is a resentful person, likely born with little empathy. And then we see Max and Max is interesting. So I'm just going to pause and send you guys a picture. Oh, I can't wait what he looks like during the entire show and we will upload this you guys to our facebook or instagram page or both or both probably both (laughs) (laughs) there's the classic laughs (laughs) i don't know what my classic laugh is yours is just pretty standard so i just sent the pictures oh okay oh your phone is faster than mine i just got it (laughs) oh so to me Um, I just sent Sarah and Lindsay a picture of him on the show, and it's pretty much how he was the entire time, with every answer he gave the entire time he was talking. To me, and of course this is my opinion, my personal description, he appears paranoid, he's very exaggerated, Um, his eyebrows... Exactly. His eyebrows are always raised. His eyes are always wide open. He just seems to talk about everything as if he had no choice but to do it. So Mm. let's get into it. Mad Max was born Maxim Gelman on May 31st, 87, in the Ukraine, which at that time was part of the Soviet Union. His father immigrated to the United States in 92, and then he and his mother followed a couple years later. They settled down in New York. They gained citizenship. And then soon after his father returned to the Ukraine, his mother eventually remarried. And Max attended Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn. It's unclear if he graduated or not. He was known as a skateboarder, was unpopular, not having many friends or girlfriends, and this is reported to have increased his paranoid and antisocial tendencies that he already had. He took up the hobby of graffiti, and then... Oh, that's just a hobby? It's a hobby. Uh, Other artists called him an unwanted troublemaker. So even with his hobby, uh, he wasn't even wanted there. But he started to have more social interactions with others by way of being arrested many times. That is very socially interacting. (laughs) (laughs) That's his social interaction. That's my little twist on it. (laughs) You got to talk to somebody. Oh, hey, it's you again. (laughs) That was a social interaction. Action. Hobbies include graffiti, social interaction with police. This is great. Being arrested. Sorry. He was arrested for graffiti-related offenses, and then he got a job. You ready for this? He got a job as a small-time drug dealer and user of crack cocaine, prescription pills, and PCP. Ah, there it is. PCP. Yep. Max said that he moves tens of thousands of dollars of cocaine and Oxycontin a week to uh, physicians, pharmacists, lawyers. He thinks he's this big-time dealer. And the psychiatrist comes on at this point and states that by Max's account, he was a successful drug dealer. But by other accounts, he was a user who did a little drug dealing in order to procure the drugs. He believes that Max created an inflated self-image to elevate his low self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So 
Max met up with some more of his law enforcement buds by way of being arrested for possession and robbery and a number of other charges. And Max comes on and he chimes in and states that he likes to smoke angel dust or PCP every once in a while because, quote, it calms him. No, it doesn't. It makes you climb trees. Right. It does not calm anybody. (laughs) The psychiatrist comes on to explain that PCP is a potent drug that gives you energy, (laughs) makes you feel invincible, delays sensations of pain, and can give you an incredible drive to keep going on and on. Pretty much the opposite of calm. I mean, one of the hallmarks is like a a superhuman strength. So Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's a messed up drug. Messed up. So here's where things escalate. Mad Max, <laughs> the man we have come to know and n- know, um, is responsible <laughs> for a 28-hour yeah, killing spree that lasted from February 11th to February 12th in New York City. Whoa. And so what happened? Max states that early in the morning on February 11th, 2011, he went and purchased a kilo of cocaine. And on his way back, every car around him, every single one, had official plates. Police cars were following him. His cell phone was dying much more quickly than normal. His texts were messed up. His phone was calling people all by itself. Mm -hmm. He thinks that the feds have tapped his cell phone and are following him. And so, like any paranoid person, he makes a plan to skip town and buys a ticket to the Dominican and heads over to his mom's house to say goodbye. Remember that his mom remarried and her husband, which is Max's stepdad, is 54-year-old Alexander Kuznetsov. And according to police reports, Uh. on the morning of Friday, or on the morning of February 11th in Brooklyn, Max got into an argument with his mother, Svetlana, about driving Kuznetsov's car. Svetlana calls 911 when the argument moves to Max and Kuznetsov and soon becomes violent. Max ended up stabbing him 55 times and killed him. Jeez. Whoa. That's overkill. That's hatred. That's, yeah, rage. Overkill. Yeah. His mom was not physically hurt. Uh, Mentally, though, I think we can all conclude how terrible it must have been to watch her husband be murdered by her only son. Max just describes his stepfather as an angry fat Russian who was yelling obscenities at him. And that's almost all that he has to say about it. And then asked when asked why he didn't um, hurt his mom, he's like, I, he's dumbfounded at the question. Like, I would never hurt my mom. I love my mom. Um, the psychiatrist comes on and calls this a deluge, deluge of anger and resentment and rage and states that the act was not about disabling the individual as much as it was about letting go of the rage that he had been building up since this guy came into the picture and his dad left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, they didn't have a good relationship before this yeah correct i didn't know if this was just like him being high on pcp you know yeah true good point good point he says that um his stepfather kuznetsov was a drinker and whenever he would drink he would be disrespectful to his mother and he didn't like that okay so but um, that's coming from max so max leaves the house he says Uh, And I quote, I got the feds after me and I just caught a body and I'm probably not going to come home anytime soon. The people that were snitching on me have to die. 
because they're rats. So okay. now, now he's on a tirade. <laughs> mm. Yeah. He's also uh, paranoid it, still. He's he's escalating for sure. After this, Max drives to the home of a female acquaintance, 20-year-old Yelena Bolchenko. Bolchenko's friends come on and they say that he was obsessed with her and imagined a romantic relationship with her. Max claims that Bolchenko was a drug addict, addict who worked for him and had set him up for robbery and that's why he was after her. He said that he she was his driver while he was dealing the drugs, but her friend and her boyfriend who came on the show insisted that she she didn't even know how to drive. So he comes looking for Yelena when she's not there and her 56-year-old mother Anna is and Anna wouldn't tell him where Yelena was. He just stabs and kills Anna, her mom. He said, I can't get to Yelena since she's not here. I might as well get to her mother who's the closest thing to her. Aww. So he just leaves Anna's body there. He left to try and find a few others who he thinks have turned him into the feds. While he was doing that, Yelena comes home, finds her mom dead on the floor. She calls 911 and goes outside to wait for them. Max, in the meantime, can't find any of the people that he's after. So he circles back around to Yelena's house and confronts her in the front yard and in front of all the neighbors who have come out as police and firemen are starting to arrive. He ends up stabbing her 11 times and she later dies from her injuries Jeez. as he Man. speeds off in Kuznetsov's car. Hats off for all these uh, Russian pronunciations good job oh I yeah you're love, doing a great job i love russian names i just have to say oh oh i would be stumbling with my r's <laughs> there's my <laughs> laugh i got the classic get out of here why don't you go to work how about that i'm getting ready to Cash me outside. Cash me outside. How about that? No, 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 no. That's no. on TikTok. Yeah, no, that was on Doctor Phil's. Where that came from? <laughs> it was. I know, but now it's a TikTok, TikTok that people are making. It's okay. so funny. I don't know. I got wrapped up. You need to. You need to be wrapped up too. Cash me outside. I, I'm resisting. I'll think about it. <laughs> Do you want to laugh in quarantine? That's all I gotta say. It Did is you? so fucking funny. I am dying every day. Did you even start Game of Thrones? Remember how we talked about this a couple weeks ago? No, I said I'd think about it, and I haven't done it. <laughs> Have you thought also, about it? Watch the show. I thought about it. So, here we are. No, I told you I refuse to watch it. It's not going to happen. Oh my gosh! What else are you doing during quarantine? <laughs> um, editing episodes, watching TV. Yeah. All right, all right. She did watch yeah. Tiger King, so she did watch that for me. I did. And I, I can't it. get that back. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did say we were all like, what the fuck? <laughs> yes. Was. We yes. all were like, um. I mean, that's what you're supposed to be like when you're watching it. <laughs> I just, it's because you can't explain it in Mission words. complete. You mm -hmm. have to watch it in order to know. You just have okay. to watch it. Are you ready? Yes, yeah, sorry. Okay, we got off track. All right. Weird. So driving erratically, he rammed another car. And when he confronted the driver, Arthur DiCrescento, he wildly stabbed at him and injured him and then carjacked his vehicle. Arthur was taken to the hospital with critical injuries. And on the show, Max just says... 
I just needed the car. I didn't want to kill an innocent person. I needed to get around. The interviewer says, but you're stabbing them. To which he replies in a dumbfounded tone, they're not going to give up the car just like that with a smirk on his face. Like, he just doesn't get it. I mean, if somebody threatened me with a knife, I'd give them my car. Right, but he, basically what he's saying is that the only way that somebody's going to give up the car is with a knife, and so that's his only option. Mm. I mean, he could take, like, a an empty running vehicle, or he could just, I mean, you know, too. not kill people. Or you could just, like, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying you should do this, but if someone even just threatened me with a knife, wouldn't even have to stab me. I would be like, yeah, take my car, just don't hurt me. I don't know. I mean, we're in the Midwest, and we're a little more laid back here i feel like in new york they're kind of harder and if somebody came at somebody in new york with a knife they'd be like get out of here forget it forget about it is that what they say with that carjacked vehicle he's uh struck and killed a pedestrian and rare coin expert named steven tannenbaum and it's kind of sad because on the show they show real bystander footage of the scene and there are coins everywhere responders are gathering coins putting them back into his black suitcase and um he dies and it's just real sad he's probably a, a real cool person knows lots about coins oh bummer i know it's sad but that makes me like smile that people were like doing that for him yeah Police launch a manhunt and no one can find Max overnight. He said he was um, hiding in tunnels. Uh, They showed a picture and it looks like a, like a, a homeless camp. But who knows? I don't know the area. Um, Just before 1 a.m. the next day, so now we're on February 12th, 25-year-old Sheldon Pottinger is outside of a church waiting for his wife after a late service. And Sheldon states that a guy comes up to the car, pulls out a knife, and screams at him that he's going to kill him. Max forces himself into the car, pushing Sheldon into the passenger seat. The two are fighting in the car as Max is driving. He keeps increasing the speed and gets up to about 80 miles an hour when Sheldon jumps out of the car for his life. And he actually ends up surviving with uh, very little injuries. Wow. That's amazing. So as day breaks and as uh, authorities are hunting him, Max gets onto the subway and he sees a newspaper with his mugshot on it. He appeared on the show almost proud of that moment that he first saw himself in a newspaper. Proud to have reached that level of notoriety. He was next spotted. Yes. A few hours later on a subway train where passengers recognized him from the newspaper photographs and they notified police. So... He's still on the train when police secretly notify the motorman of the train. And it stops, an announcement's made that there is an ongoing investigation, and that's why the train stopped, and it'll just be a few as they investigate the train. Max states that he then jumps off the train onto the train tracks, and as police are nearing him with flashlights, he jumps onto a slowly moving, oncoming train between cars. So he's now in his own superhero movie. Mm. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Sure. Good job, Max. <laughs> According to reports, Max starts banging on the door of the motorman's cab, demanding to be let in, stating, open the door, this is official business, like he was a police officer, um, in hopes that he could just hijack the train and get out. So now he's on to hijacking subway trains. The door opens and out pops two police officers. Ooh. And 
They uh, subdue him with the help of a bystander because it's he's struggling. You know, he, PCP. He's he's strong, superhuman strength, Very and um, he's yeah. outdoing these two police officers. So a man named Joe Lozito is just a bystander, six three, two hundred and seventy pounds. He is right there, and he helps the police up out. He. In the scuffle, Max ends up stabbing Joe seven times. Um, One of his head wounds requires over 20 staples, but Joe survives. And he's actually on the show. Good job, Joe. Right. He's actually on the show. He can tell the story. And he seems like a pretty cool guy. He's like, the only thing that kept me going when all all I could see was red is my wife and my two boys. And it was really sweet. And he was like, just doing that, like to be a good citizen. Yeah. Absolutely. So Max was then arrested. And at this point, he is still saying that he's being followed by the feds. He says, I was pretty shocked that the feds and the NYPD let me go on like this, saying that basically it's their fault that all this happened. If they weren't following him, none of this would have happened. According to the DA, there was no surveillance on him. The psychiatrist comes on and states that he believes that Max was using and abusing angel dust and it had profound long-lasting effects enhancing his already paranoid view of the world so just as we thought pcp pcp got him uh, on top of his um issues that he was struggling with already his trial was the next day on February 13th in Brooklyn. He was represented by a public defender. Um, before that, it was arranged that he be evaluated for mental illness uh, that could have caused the spree. Um, the psychiatrist sure. on the show is actually the one that assessed him for this. And he says that he came to the conclusion that at the time of the crimes, he does not believe that Max was suffering from a mental defect and that he could appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions so insanity is out the window he was being arraigned on charges of murder and assault and in front of the large crowd he reportedly showed absolutely no remorse and just sat there and said that he had been set up so fast forward to november 30th max ends up pleading guilty to all, all charges He states that he wouldn't want to be in a mental institution for the rest of his life because there are people out there who are really mental, quote unquote. Somebody had brought back up um, insanity and the idea that he could just um, get that plea and live the rest of his life in a mental institution, but he didn't like the idea of that, and so that's why he ended up pleading guilty by his own accord. Because he would rather go to jail than, like, a mental institution. Correct. Gotcha. During his sentencing on January 18th in 2012... In a New York Supreme Court, Mad Max was reported as being unruly, fidgeting, laughing, yelling at the judge and the family and friends of his victims, and he had to be removed from the courtroom once. When he got into a yelling match with Yelena's boyfriend, he stated, I'm not the bad guy here. These people did bad things to me. He blamed his victims and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, claiming that he was a drug dealer who was being followed. He said, it's not my fault that all this happened. The judge is quoted as saying, you are a violent predator and a sociopath. And he was sentenced to 200 plus years in prison, which is the maximum sentence for each of the 13 counts. And that's where he is today. Okay, Max. Probably probably for the best. Right. I mean, definitely for the best, but... 
But Max still, I feel like, needs some mental health help. Right. So the psychiatrist who evaluated him, I mean, obviously he's not high on drugs anymore when he was going to court. Right. That's what I mean. And he's still acting like He's erratic, still acting right? paranoid and delusional. Yeah. Yep. So I have a nice little book called How Psychology Works. Oh, please, please tell me. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy this. Um, it, the personality disorder clusters. So cluster yes. B, yep. the antisocial personality disorder. Yep. Just a few of the little things that come up. The person manipulates, exploits, or violates the rights of others. They see mm -hmm. other people as vulnerable and may intimidate or bully them without remorse. They can be aggressive, even violent. Their behavior is often criminal. They lie and steal and use aliases to deceive people. They disregard their own and others' safety. They are consistently irresponsible and impulsive and have no concern for the consequences of their actions. They blame other people for problems they encounter. The disorder becomes evident in late teens and often dis dissipates by middle age. And psychopathy is um, sometimes considered a subset of antisocial personality disorder. And it's one of the hardest disorders to diagnose and is largely resistant to treatment. It presents yeah. as a specific set of personality traits and behaviors. Interpersonal traits include grandiosity, deceit, and arrogance, emotional-based traits like lack of guilt and empathy, and impulsive traits sexual promiscuity, as well as criminal behavior, such as stealing. Individuals lack inhibition and do not learn from their experience. They can seem charming at first, but their inab inability to feel guilt, empathy, or love, along with the presence of casual, reckless attachments and behavior quickly becomes evident. Many traits, especially the ability to make clear emotion-free decisions, can be found in successful individuals, and it more commonly happens in men. But I thought this was kind of a fascinating one to discuss with Lindsay, because Thanks. I thought you might have some insight on, or an, uh, an, an opinion on this story. I do. So, I've dealt with my fair share of antisocials. Um... And that's not me being insensitive. That's like what just we in the field call them individuals with the antisocial personality disorder just gets long to say. Um, I've dealt with my fair share of them. I can see it with him just from what you've said, the no remorse thing and the, um, you know, resistance to authority and all that stuff kind of lines it up just from, it sounds like his background and him. This is my disclaimer that <laughs> I am not doing diagnosing or anything like that because I don't know this guy at all. But I was also thinking of other personality disorders. There's um, schizotypal and um, schizoid personality disorder as well that could possibly fit because those have like, like their characteristics are you're isolated from others, kind of a loner, delusional thinking, paranoia, things like that. And so that's what I keep fixating on with him is the paranoia and the delusional thinking that is still there without the drugs. Right. Did he just, did he just have a breaking point though? Or was he like that? Uh, always. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he was high on something when he committed all of these, you know, right. there was PCP, cocaine, whatever. But was uh, the paranoia always there or was it only when he was on drugs or was it when he was, you know what I mean? Like there's differences there. It's yeah. It's, all and that's a, it's a good question. You know, I'm sure 
It could be either or. It could be that it was all just substance induced, or it could be that he was paranoid anyways, and the drugs highlighted that paranoia into him acting on it. I would guess that the paranoia was there anyways, because he's still paranoid. And still I mean, believes you can that see it on his face. Him. Yeah, for sure. And he still believes people are after him. He's still antagonizing other people, you know, which to him could be his fight or flight response, you know, that he's thinking these people are after him. And that's why he's attacking them. And that's why he's even right. in the court, you know, attacking these people who are the yeah. friends of the victims because he thinks those victims were after him. Exactly. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, man. Yeah. Good one, Boydston. Yeah. Oh, thanks. You know, I love my clinical mental health stuff. Yes. Ah. You know, I do too. I just have a fascination fascination with it. And I just kind of, I don't know, I just kind of get sucked to those types of cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah. all of them that we talked about tonight are falling into that category somehow. Yeah. And I feel like almost, you know, anybody who kills somebody mm-hmm. almost has to yeah. have something. Right. Possibly. I mean, yeah. Unless it's, you know, almost a, a everybody, crime yeah. of rage, self-defense, right. you know, crime right. of passion. I don't know. Wow. Wow. That was fun. <laughs> Everything was so fun. That was our a first, little... like, all true crime episode, guys. Yeah. Right? A little trip down true crime lane. True crime uh, lane. I can't wait till we're back exploring our paranormal stuff. I love true crime and our smorgasbord episodes, but I cannot wait. Until we are back in true crime podcast. No, sorry. Back that. Paranormal. No, wait till we are back in <laughs> paranormal podcast. Well, yes. I love them all. I love yeah. them all. But like, I want to, I want to go somewhere again. I know. And get out there with you guys. Cause that's my favorite. Yes. And thank you guys for being patient with us as we are adapting and not able to go ghost hunting and doing that. You know, right. sometimes the internet works. Sometimes the internet doesn't work. Right. <laughs> That's our favorite. We love to ghost hunt. We love all the things, obviously. That's why we talk about all of them. But I would say our favorite is to go there and be there and yeah, I mean, that's ultimately why we started this is so that we could share our experiences. We had stuff lined up for months and then, yeah. you know, things happen. So we're just right. doing our best and making the best of things and we're going to get right. back into it. And I mean, things are good. Yeah. yeah. Life is good. We're going to get through this. Yeah. As yeah. soon as this pandemic passes, guys, we will be back to the ghost hunting. Trust us. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I yes. cannot wait. I cannot wait. And when it does, we are going to have, I feel like a few like back to back because we've had some that have been canceled and, and, uh, you know, we've, oh, we've organized got, our dates. Yeah. We've got one at the end of May, one at the beginning of June and then one in the beginning of August. Yeah. So it's just, we'll see. And, yeah. you know, we're being flexible. That's yeah. what everyone's yeah. having to do right now, right in the world. We're all having to be flexible. So that's right. That's right. Thanks for being flexible with us, guys. Lindsay, where can they find us? Where can they find us? Yeah, so, sorry, my plug. Here it comes. Ready. Um, You can always... She's giving me a look, even through Skype. You can always... (laughs) It looked like you did. No, that's just my face. Okay. (laughs) It's called RBF. I'm also lagging a little bit. I have it, so... (laughs) Maybe it was something I said, like, five seconds ago. You can always find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Tipsy Ghost. And you can also send us an email at the tipsyghost at gmail.com. We would love to hear any stories about anything paranormal, 
true crime myths urban legends any experience you've had we would love to hear it i think we should do a listener episode like a we should so this is our call to you we can only do a listener episode if you make it happen give us stories into our gmail inbox and we will tell them on the air if you don't want us to say your name just let us know yeah Yeah. we don't have to say your name or we'll come up with a pseudonym (laughs) Ooh. Okay, Do you like so that word? Yeah. I was I was impressed. Uh, right. I was going to say anonymous. Oh, that's <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay, well, email us your pseudonym. Yes. <laughs> the tipsy ghost at gmail.com and we will talk to you guys next week. Yes. All right. See you Thanks, later. Bye. 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 Bye.